Well, here's what we've been talking about this semester. We started off with uh, the doctrine of humanity. We talked about what does it mean to be human, uh, and then we talked about uh, sin, uh, homardiology, the doctrine of sin and how mankind became corrupted. And then for the last several weeks, what we've been talking about specifically is how Christ earned our salvation for us, okay? So when you talk about soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, you have to separate what Christ did versus how you get it what Christ has actually accomplished versus how it's applied to you. So this semester, we've been talking about what Christ did in uh, purchasing our salvation. Next semester, we're going to talk about the application of redemption is what it's called, the idea of how do we get it. So a good way to think about it, pretend that my dad uh, worked really hard and got a bunch of money and had a huge bank account. That's what he did. That's his work. If I inherit it, that's how I receive it. Okay, those are different things, though they're in the same topic, the same general category. And so that's kind of what we've been talking about. We've been talking about specifically how Christ has earned our salvation. Uh, and then next semester, we'll talk about how we get it. Uh, what does it mean to uh, have atonement made on your behalf? What does it mean to be predestined? What is conversion? Uh, what is regeneration? All these kind of things. We'll talk about that next semester. Uh, and so today, we're going to be finishing uh, this semester by talking about some more work that Christ does on our behalf to earn our salvation. We've said this several times that salvation salvation is earned. It's just not earned by you, okay? It's earned by somebody, and that somebody is Christ. And so we talked about His perfect life, uh, how you're not just saved by the death of Christ. That would make you neutral, but you're also saved by His positive righteousness, by the fact that He in His life is actively obeying, being obedient, resisting temptation, succeeding in all the places where we have failed, all the places where Adam has failed, and all the places where uh, Israel has failed. And so today… <coughs> excuse me, by the way, I've got a little… Uh, cough or cold or something, so that always makes me sound actually better. Uh, I just feel worse why I'm speaking. So uh, you're welcome for the uh, Michael Bolton rasp uh, this morning. Uh, but today, we're going to be talking about Christ and His role as prophet, priest, and king. His role as prophet, priest, and king. Now, I typically don't mention a lot of the sources that I use to prepare for these lessons, but if I lean on one especially heavily, I want to mention that uh, just to avoid plagiarism. But there's a really, really, really helpful lecture that I used for a lot of this lesson uh, from a professor at Westminster Seminary, California. His name's Dennis Johnson, uh, and he's got a lecture on Christ as prophet, priest, and king. I think you can get it on the Gospel Coalition's website, uh, but if you want to check that out, it is a really, really, really helpful resource. Now, let me explain what we're talking about. When we talk about offices, we don't mean where you go in that place you sit all day by the cubicle and do your work on a computer, okay? When we talk about offices, we mean official roles that somebody fulfills within an institution. So in the church today, because all the apostles are dead, there are two remaining offices, and those are the office of pastor slash elder. By the way, all pastors are elders and vice versa. Those terms are different terms, but it's the same office. And the other is the office of deacon. That's how we would use offices in the church. Well, there's a bunch of different offices uh, in the Old Testament, but the three big ones that you see are prophet, priest, and king. Let's talk about what some of these things are. First of all, what is a prophet? Somebody give me just a general definition of a prophet, best you can. I know we haven't done the lesson yet. What is a prophet? You know that term. What was it? Yeah, someone who speaks forth the truth of the Word. I think that's a great definition. Prophets come and they say, God has said this, or you need to repent, or you're walking in sin, and this is the way you need to go. They're these heralds from God that typically tell people to repent, to turn away. And if you don't turn away, here are these things that could happen. And then it gets all uh, figurative language, and the moon will turn to blood, and the stars will fall from the sky, and it becomes very uh, exaggerated, okay? What is a priest? Generally. Again, we're going to go over what all these are biblically, but I just want to make sure we've got a general conception of what these things are. What's a priest? What is it? 
connects the hand of God with the hand of man. Yeah, I think that's a good way to say it. That's an interesting way to say it. A priest is kind of this mediator between God and man, okay? This priest is kind of this, uh, this person that helps bring reconciliation. Priests do things like uh, offer sacrifices, cleanse the temple, they counsel people, they uh, teach the Bible, they do these kind of things, okay? They're these ministers of reconciliation, which, by the way, is a term that's used of Christians in the New Testament because all Christians are now priests, <coughs> but that's what they are in the Old Testament. So when we say priest, don't think like Roman Catholic priest, clerical collar, that's not what we mean. We mean someone from the Old Testament who has this official office or role of mediating on behalf of Israel. And then what is a king? This is probably the one that's the easiest for us to answer, despite the fact that we are America and we hate kings, right? We like, uh, we like our freedoms. Uh, what is a king? Oh, come on. This is a softball. What's a king? A ruler. That's right, right? Not a, not a 12-inch measuring stick, but rather somebody who uh, administrates, somebody who uh, has military might, somebody who uh, governs over a local population. And so we're going to talk about these different things uh, here today. So I want to mention something before we do, and before we get into the Old Testament and look at each of these offices. There is a sense in which uh, Adam and Eve are made to fulfill all these offices. Prophet, priest, and king, in a sense, is a role of humanity, Right? So, there's a sense in which Adam and Eve are prophets in the sense that they herald God's goodness to all creation. They're commanded to subdue the earth for God's glory, uh, and uh, in that sense, they're kind of like prophets. They're, they're there to say, God is great, God is glorious, as they subdue the earth, as they cultivate, as the garden was made to expand, there's a sense in which God's Word, God's glory, His uh, renown goes forth. There's a sense in which they're priests, right? We talked about this when we talked about the, uh, the creation of the Garden of Eden, that uh, Eden is really kind of God's tabernacle. It's kind of God's temple. Though God is everywhere, God doesn't have a body. He's spirit. He's infinite. He's everywhere. His presence is especially felt in the Garden of Eden. There's some sort of special fellowship between God and man uh, in the Garden of Eden. And then what happens after sin is God removes that presence, though it still remains at certain periods throughout Israel's history that are reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. That's why the temple has floral imagery and the tabernacle has pictures of cherubim and these kind of things. It's meant to remind you uh, of the Garden of Eden. So there's a sense in which uh, Adam and Eve are like these priests. And there's also a sense in which they're kings. We actually talked about that's the primary thing it means to bear the image of God. It doesn't mean you look like God. Again, God is infinite. He doesn't have a body. What it means is that you do what God does. God is the king, capital K. He rules over the whole universe. <clears throat> and so what he does is he appoints man to be these little vice regents, to say, this is your domain, rule over the earth for my glory. You rule over the animals, you name the animals because you have authority over them, take my glory to the ends of the earth. So there's a sense in which this role is actually something that humans were meant to participate in, that uh, Adam and Eve were kind of the original prophets, priests, and kings. They were the one in fellowship with God. They were the one mediating God's presence to the world. They were the one who uh, were to expand this dominion over the whole earth. And so keep that in mind as we go through this. But we're going to look at each of these offices from the Old Testament. Then we're going to see how Christ fulfills these offices, uh, and then we have some uh, encouraging words for you here at the end. So, first of all, let's talk about the office of prophet from the Old Testament, okay? Now, there's a lot that we could look at. There's a lot of different verses we could look at, primarily in Deuteronomy 17 and 18, but I've put a little snippet here that I want us to read uh, of what the role of a prophet should be in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 22, okay? So, I want to read this to you. It says this, <clears throat> The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire anymore lest I die. 
And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak for them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know that the word of the Lord has not spoken? I'm sorry. How may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Okay? So this is just one place where it's going to talk about two things here. It's going to talk about a greater prophet than Moses, an ultimate prophet that's coming. Who do you think that is? Keep that in the back of your mind. But it's also going to talk about generally a way to discern true and false prophets, okay? True and false prophets. And so a few notes I want to, uh, to give you about the office of prophet here. Number one, the office of prophet is typically uh, not a hereditary office like priest and kings, Okay? So this isn't just something you're born into. If you are the son of a king, one day you will be king when your dad dies, okay? It's hereditary. This is why it's so big when you watch The Crown or when you watch The Royal Wedding or whatever. It's very interesting to see the family ties and who gets to be the duchess of whatever and who gets to be king if this person died. And you're like, hey, I'm ninth in line for the throne, so if I kill eight more people, then I can be king or whatever it is. It's hereditary. It's linked to family, okay? The same is true of priest. To be a priest you have to be of the tribe of Levi. You have to be one of the sons of Aaron. It's a hereditary thing that you're born into, okay? If your dad was a fisherman, you're a fisherman. If your dad was a carpenter, you're a carpenter. In the Old Testament, if your dad is a priest, you're a priest, okay? It's hereditary. The office of prophet is unlike that. Now, there are some sons of prophets that are also prophets, but the office of prophet is not primarily hereditary. It seems to be more something that God just calls someone into. He'll call this person to be a prophet, or he'll call this person to be a prophet, and they'll come into Israel and say, Guys, y'all got to listen to me. I'm telling you something from God. And they're like, we don't like what you have to say because it goes against the establishment. And then they kill him or something like this. It's not a great job a lot of times to be a prophet. You have to live out in the woods and eat bugs and people are always trying to kill you. All right. So uh, if you uh, have great aspirations in Old Testament Israel, uh, you may not want to become a prophet. Next thing to mention, prophets call the established leaders of Israel to account. Okay. You will constantly see this in the Old Testament. They're not just weirdos on the street corner preaching. Rather, what they do is they go before the official establishment of Israel and they say, you have turned aside. You need to repent. You're doing this wrong. You're committing idolatry. And if you don't repent, God is going to bring the fire, all right? He's going to make you hurt. There is going to be great discipline. You're going to be kicked out. You're going to be exiled, whatever they have to say. But they go and they push against the official establishment of Israel, okay? By the way, just some interesting things to note about prophets as well. They are typically the ones not going with the majority, keep that in mind. There are also typically ones, what is the difference between somebody who's just divisive and needs church discipline and somebody who's being prophetic? It's not whether or not they're controversial, it's whether or not they're right. It's whether or not what they're saying is what God has really said, okay? Next, they give words from God, okay? Not only are some of the prophets writing prophets where we have uh, their written words, if you think of something like Jeremiah, uh, but they give the word from God. They come and they say, God has told me this, listen to what I'm saying. I'm not making this up. I'm not just saying God's put this on my heart. I'm not just saying I feel this. I'm saying God has said, this is the case. You need to listen. 
that actually makes it a little bit different than New Testament prophecy. We're not going to get into spiritual gifts today, but eventually when we talk about New Testament prophecy, New Testament prophecy is not binding like that. In fact, elders of the church are told to discern what the prophets say to see if it's biblical or not. That's not what you do in the Old Testament, though. If Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or whoever says, you need to repent, nobody gets to call him to account. They say, we need to repent. And they know that those are true prophets because what they prophesy comes to pass. Next, this is an important uh, clarification. Prophecy is more forthtelling than foretelling. Let me explain what I mean by that. When we think of prophets, a lot of times we have a tendency to think of people that are just telling the future. We have a tendency to think sometimes that prophets are like fortune tellers. They're just saying, here's what's going to happen in the future. That's not the primary role of a prophet. Now, let me be clear. There are a lot of things in the Old Testament prophets where they are saying, this is something that's going to come to pass. Okay? They do that a lot. But that's not the primary thing they do. They primarily do forthtelling, not foretelling. What does that mean? They're primarily not telling you about the future. They're calling people to repentance and telling them what God has said. And then they say, if you don't do this, this is what the future will look like. So they're not just here saying, hey, I looked into my crystal ball and here's what's going to happen in the future just so you can be interested in what's going to happen. That's not their point. They come and they say, repent, 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 repent. If you do repent, here's some good things that are coming. If you don't repent, here's some bad things that are coming, okay? So yes, they sometimes do tell the future, but they really only do that in response to a bigger message that they have. They're not just like, hey, I'm here to give you some cool information so you don't have to wonder what's going to happen in the future. Rather, they're calling people to account. People don't like prophets in the Old Testament because they push against established norms and they call people back to the truth of God's Word. That's primarily what they do. They critique society. They critique politics. They critique the king. You think of people like Nathan the prophet who critiques King David. Uh, They critique uh, certain practices. Hey, you guys are not keeping Sabbaths like you should. You're not doing whatever it might be. And uh, and so it's more forthtelling than foretelling. And lastly, I want you to see this. This text says that there will be one ultimate prophet who will come. Now, this is fascinating. The office of prophet was never meant to just be a bunch of random people. This text says that there is a greater prophet than Moses coming. Now, you need to think of it like this. Prophets are great. They give a word from God. At the top of the prophecy food chain is Moses. He's the one who gets to personally fellowship with God. That's what it means, again, when he sits with him face to face. That's not meaning to say God has a face again, like how big is God's nose. It's meant to say that it's personal, right? That, that, That Moses has this access to God that most people don't have. And so the idea is that Moses is like the SEAL Team 6 Jedi Master Ninja Warrior of prophets, and one is coming who is going to be greater even than him. One is coming who will not merely have fellowship with God, but will be God himself, Okay. So there is this, uh, in this text, this prophecy. Jesus points to this, by the way. He talks about a, how Moses said that there was a prophet coming uh, that would be greater than Moses, okay? Now, that's prophets. Let's talk about priests, things to know about priests in the Old Testament. Again, there's a lot of stuff we could read. I thought about just like getting the book of Numbers and just reading the entire book of Numbers, like the whole time we were here or Leviticus. I know that's where most of you guys do your devotionals. You probably have a lot of uh, pillows crocheted in your home with verses from Leviticus about not, uh, you know, doing all these certain temple rituals and where to splatter the blood and such. But out of Deuteronomy 18, again, Uh, I want to show you kind of the role of a priest. There's a lot that we could read, but for time's sake, I just want to give you one, okay? This is what it says. The Levitical priest, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offering as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers, 
The Lord is their inheritance, as He promised them. And this shall be the priest's due from the people. From those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep, they shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach, the first fruits of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the first fleece of your sheep you shall give him. For the Lord your God has chosen him, this is very important, this is their role, out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons for all time. Okay? So, again, there's a lot of text we could look at. <clears throat> I want you to see a few things here about the priest, okay? And then I'll get into these little notes I have about the priest. Notice that the priests don't have a land inheritance. When God gives Israel the land of Israel, when He gives His people, the Hebrews, the land of Israel, He divides Israel into these different sections. All right, so Gad and Reuben and Judah and all these different areas. But Levi doesn't get that. Levi's portion specifically is to get to be priest before God. This is actually why you have this idea of tithing in the Old Testament, okay? What is a tithe? The word tithe means tenth. It's where people would have to give a tenth of their wealth to the temple, to the priest, because they don't have any other way to make money. They can't go farm. They can't go trade in the marketplace. They're busy offering sacrifices. They're busy praying. They're busy burning incense. They're busy doing uh, these ritual things. So are we under a tithe today? No. What temple do we give to? There is no more temple. The temple's been destroyed. Christ is the temple. Do we still give generously? Are we still commanded to give for the work of ministry? Yes, but it's not the exact same as it was in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you get the shadow in the New Testament, you get the substance. So, a few things to uh, keep in mind here. Priests are of the family of Aaron and of the tribe of Levi, okay? Who's Aaron? Who remembers who Aaron is? Moses' brother, right? Moses is supposed to go to Pharaoh and tell him to repent and to let Israel go. And he says, and I quote, but I don't talk good. He goes, okay, well then your brother Aaron who's smooth-tongued, old uh, silver-mouthed Aaron, he'll go with you and he'll be your voice and he'll be like your prophet. And uh, so Aaron and his sons eventually are the ones that are chosen to be uh, priests. Uh, and so you have to be of the tribe of Levi. You have to be uh, linked to Aaron to be a priest. Now, this is important <coughs> that uh, the priesthood is a hereditary thing, unlike the role of prophet. So when we talked about prophet, that's something that anybody can be called to be a prophet. You even have in the Old Testament prophetesses. Uh, you have in the New Testament prophetesses, a woman praying or prophesied uh, with her head covered in service uh, is allowed. Uh, and so, but when it comes to the priests, the idea is they have to be linked to uh, the tribe of Levi, okay? Next, they are ministers of reconciliation. Their job is to unite. I like the way that, that Tom said it, the hand of God and the hand of man. Their job is to unite uh, heaven and earth in a sense, okay? Though God is everywhere, His presence is especially close to the temple, and the closer you go in the temple, the closer you get to God's presence. In fact, in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant is actually called God's footstool. Uh, it's like His divine feet touch down uh, right there where heaven and earth meet. And so priests, they uh, offer sacrifices to make atonement for the people, which would ultimately be fulfilled in Christ. They minister to people. They counsel. They teach the Bible. They do these kind of things uh, as ministers of reconciliation, okay? As part of their work of reconciliation, they make atonement for the people. Okay? You had these daily sacrifices. You would have to do in Israel what's called the tamid, uh, but you would also have these other sacrifices where you would have uh, special sacrifices. You would have this scapegoat where you would confess your sins over this goat, and it would run off into the woods uh, to take your sin away from you. You had uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, where the uh, high priest would go in uh, and make a bigger kind of atonement for the, the nation of Israel. Uh, if you were a king and you sinned, you had to offer a bigger sacrifice than if you were just like a regular layperson and these kind of things, but they are in charge of making atonement 
atonement for the people. That's a big portion of what they do all day is kill these animals, have blood sacrifices and these kind of things. Part of the way that they eat and they get their food is that they are allowed to eat part of the sacrifice because it's like Old Testament communion. It's a way to have a meal with God, if you want to say it that way, okay? I don't think we talk about that enough in communion. In the Old Testament, sacrifice would be made, and then the priest would eat the meat as an act of worship to God, okay? And it was, a, it was like a, a way of showing you had communion with God. Because Christ has made atonement, we partake of this family meal with the bread and the wine as a way of having a meal with Christ, okay? So there's some parallels there. Also, they maintain the purity and holiness of the temple and Israelite worshipers. When you read in the Old Testament, okay, so here's what happens. You go to church camp when you're, uh, you know, in middle school, and you're all fired up for the gospel, right? For like two weeks, you're going to change the world for Christ. And so you get home that night, and you're like, that was the most inspiring sermon I've ever heard. I'm going to read the whole Bible tonight. And so you start plowing through it, and then you get to all these commands about You'll be unclean this many days, and if you do this, you can't touch this person, and if this person has leprosy, you've got to shave their head, and you get into this, and you're like, what is all this stuff? What is all this weird ritual uh, cleanliness? It's almost like all God cares about is absolute total purity. That's the point of reading those things. You're supposed to read those and think, the God of the Bible is so holy that if you want to live in His presence, it demands this level of holiness, which is something the New Testament will say we cannot achieve. In fact, the Old Testament will say that, which is why you need sacrifice. Right after the law is given, you get Leviticus. Right after the law is given and the commands are given, you get a way to make atonement when you don't keep those laws. The laws were never meant to save you. But one of the things the Old Testament law does is it shows the absolute purity and holiness of God. If you do this, by the way, also just as a helpful clarification, uncleanness is not always the same thing as sin. Sin brings about uncleanness, but bodily discharge in the Old Testament also makes you unclean, and that's not sinful, okay? So, those, uh, so all sin is unclean, but not all uncleanness is necessarily sin. But all uncleanness has to be dealt with, okay? If God is an infinitely perfect and holy being, uh, He has to have beauty in His presence. He's not going to contaminate Himself, if you want to say it that way, uh, with that uncleanness. And so part of what the priests do is they make purity and holiness in the temple and the Israelite worshipers. They proclaim people clean, or they proclaim people having leprosy where they're not clean. They sprinkle blood on things as a means of cleaning it, etc. And so that is the role of the priest in the Old Testament. We're getting into a bunch of weird Old Testament stuff. You guys like that? We'll do Old Testament theology sometime in the future, hopefully. That'll be a lot of fun. Next, let's look at uh, kings in the Old Testament. So we talked about the role of prophet, talked about the role of priest. Now we're going to look at kings, and then we'll see how Christ uh, fits into this pattern. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. Look at what the role of a king was meant to be in Israel. Okay, we talked about this before when we talked about David. It was not wrong for Israel to ask for a king. God had already promised them a king. What was wrong is that Israel wanted a king, quote, like the other nations. So they didn't have to trust God. They could just trust in some, you know, handsome military hero, this kind of, uh, you know, Alexander the Great figure uh, that would help make their nation great, okay? Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20 <clears throat> says this. When you come to the land that your Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set his king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again." And he shall not acquire many wives, Solomon, for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. 
and it shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Okay? A few things I want you to note about the role of king. First of all, it needs to be somebody who's Jewish. Okay? You're not allowed to have a foreigner, one that's not in covenant with Yahweh, one that's not in covenant with God in the Old Testament, be a king over Israel. Nor is the king to trust in himself, to trust in his military might, to try to just make his name great, to try to just acquire many horses and chariots and power and these kind of things. He's not supposed to multiply wives. Jesus is going to go back to this in the New Testament and say, God made it with one man, one woman, for marriage. That's the original design. What you see in the Old Testament when somebody acquires more than one wife is it generally goes astray in a bad direction. Okay? They're to uh, be faithful. Now, here's the the big point I want to make here. When describing the role of a king, if you were to describe the role of a king, let's say you were to create a nation and you were to say the king is supposed to do this, what requirements would you make? That they be good business leaders, that they be really savvy, that they be able to speak well, uh, that they have a, a PhD in political science or something like this. Half of this passage simply talks about the king being a good king by knowing God's law. The king is supposed to know the Bible really, really, really well. If you want to run a nation well, you want to run a business well, you want to run a church well, well, what you need is not the newest leadership guru. What you need is the Scripture. What you need is the Scripture. Now, that's powerful. In a lot of churches, the kind of people that get selected for deacons or elders or whatever are just people that are good in the secular world. Hey, this guy grew a business and sold it for a bunch of money, or this guy's well-respected in the community or whatever. In the Bible, it's the opposite. Here you have a king who has secular duties And one of the main things the king is supposed to be involved in doing is reading the Bible. He has to make a copy of it himself and read it every day. How many people in here have written down the whole Bible by hand? Not very many, right? This is what the king is supposed to do, and he's supposed to read it every day. We believe at Parkway in the sufficiency of Scripture. Everything that God requires you to know, everything that He requires you to do is in Scripture. There are other helpful things you can do in life, but everything that God requires of you is in the Bible. And so notice that kings are to study God's law. I find that to be fascinating. In an age where the church is becoming more like a corporation, in the Bible, a corporation should be more like a church, okay? It's the exact opposite of how we typically think. Next, notice that kings are involved in ruling. One of the things that kings do is they have authority over people, okay? In the Bible, when someone is a leader, without exception, it means they have authority. So not everyone is a leader. I've heard people say, everybody's a leader if you're a Christian. No, that's not true. If you don't have authority over somebody, biblically, you're not a leader. Kings have authority over the whole nation, okay? So they have authority. They make the rules. They make the laws. They veto laws. They sign laws into, uh, uh, into being, etc. Kings are involved in judging. Oftentimes, cases will be brought before a king, and a king will have to give a judgment, Before you have kings, you even have people that are called judges that rule over Israel. So think of uh, King Solomon in the case where those, uh, the prostitutes, one of the the ladies lays on her baby accidentally, the baby dies, and so she steals that other woman's baby. What do they do? They bring that baby to King Solomon, and he gives a ruling, a very wise ruling. Well, then why don't we just cut the baby in half, give half to each mom? And one says, that's a great idea. And the other one says, no, 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 you can let her have it. And he says, that's the mom, because that mom actually cares for the baby. And so you see uh, kings involved in judging, uh, and you also see kings involved in warring, all right? These are not just kings, they're warrior kings. They go to war against the Philistines. They go to war against Israel's enemies. You see this with King David, who's a man of war, et cetera, et cetera, okay? Now, one quick note before we uh, get into the New Testament stuff. Notice that these... 
Especially the office of king and the office of priest are distinct offices, okay? To be a priest, you have to be of what tribe? Levi. To be a king, you're of what tribe? Judah, all right? All right? King of Judah, post-David. Post and so... Uh, and so that's what you have with these two offices. In the Maccabean period, we talked about this, uh, in the time in between the Old and the New Testament, you have what's called the intertestamental period. You have the Maccabean period, okay, where Israel is being ruled over by these evil Seleucid kings and these kind of things. And you get this young family, the Maccabees, a guy named Judas Maccabeus, which means the hammer, uh, who uh, helps deliver Israel and these kind of things. During the Maccabean period, they actually combined the offices of priest and king which other Jews realized you were not supposed to do. That gives too much power. In the Old Testament, you have checks and balances. In a sense, and please do not read too much of America onto this, but there is a sense in which you have these three branches of government, right? You have the priests who are involved in ministering to people. You have the kings that do administration. And when they step out of line, you have the office of prophet that comes in and says, you shouldn't do this. And they all check each other, right? So if the king is in sin, a prophet comes to them. Or if the king is in sin, a priest offers a sacrifice for them, etc. There's kind of a checks and balances because the heart of man is sinful, okay? Now, before we get into the New Testament, I want to give you one quick note here. What is the idea of anointing, okay? When we say Christ, the word Christ in Greek, Christos, or the word Messiah, which is a Hebrew word, Mashiach, both of those terms mean one who's anointed, the anointed one, okay? So Christ is not like his last name. It's not like he gets mail that says to Mr. Christ or something like that, okay? It's a title, uh, of anointed one, okay? The idea of anointing is this. In the Old Testament, when you were set apart for a specific office, you would have oil poured on your head, which was a symbol of the Spirit's presence to empower you for that work, okay? So in the same way that we uh, partake of communion, that has a spiritual significance, or we do baptism, that has a spiritual significance, the idea of taking a horn of oil and pouring it over someone's head in the Old Testament was the idea to say, what you're about to do, may God bless what you're about to do, may the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit, come and indwell you and empower you for that ministry. The three offices you most see with this idea of anointing in the Old Testament are prophets, priests, and kings. That is significant when you realize that Jesus is called the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, okay? Keep that in mind with these three offices. Now, let's talk about Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. <clears throat> First, He is a prophet but he is more than just a prophet. So let me ask you this question. Is the following sentence true? I believe that Jesus is a prophet. True or false? True, okay? What you have to be careful that you don't mean is what some people mean, that Jesus is just a prophet, okay, right? So they say, well, he's just like, uh, you know, Gandhi or Buddha. He's just like this wise teacher that goes around telling everybody to love everybody. Yeah, and he goes around telling everybody that he's God and they need to repent and he's gonna, they're going to worship him. So he's like the worst weird cult Gandhi ever if he's not the son of God, okay? And so, yes, he is a prophet. I've heard some Christians say he's not a prophet. No, he is a prophet. The Bible's clear on that, but he's more than just a prophet, okay? He calls himself a prophet, the one that's greater than Moses, okay? Next, as a prophet, he reveals who God is. He who has seen me has seen the Father. No one has ever seen God, but the only begotten God at the Father's side, he has made him known, okay? You have this kind of language used in Scripture of who Christ is. If you want to know what God is like, Look at Jesus. If you want to know what God hates, see what Jesus hates. Legalism, religiosity, etc. If you want to see what God loves, look at what Jesus loves. He is, quote, the Word of God. When God creates in the Old Testament, He creates through His Word. Jesus is called that Word. Jesus is the Word that doesn't return void. He calls people to repentance. He calls people to repentance. Now, listen to this. This might blow your mind. When we think of the Pharisees, we typically think of Jesus critiquing them for their legalism. 
What's weird is if you actually look at what Jesus says, he critiques them because they're not following the law, not because they are. He says, you tie the tenth of your dill and your mint and your cumin, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. The problem is not that the Pharisees are too religious. The problem is that they're not religious enough because they don't know that real religion culminates in Jesus. They study the Scriptures in vain because they think in them you have eternal life where those Scriptures point to Christ, he says, okay? So he, uh, he calls people to repentance. He's inspired by the very Spirit of God. You see that at his baptism. There's a sense in which, because Jesus is God, that He's always in fellowship with the Spirit. The second person of the Trinity and the third person of the Trinity are always in fellowship with each other. But there is a sense in which when He is baptized, that this anointing, this empowerment for ministry comes upon Christ as the dove, you know, the Spirit kind of in a form of a dove lights on Him. The idea is uh, that Jesus is now going to begin His ministry. He doesn't do any miracles before His baptism, though He could have if He wanted to. His ministry begins after His baptism. His baptism is kind of like His anointing for ministry. He teaches people correct doctrine. He critiques them for teaching commandments that are really just the doctrines of men, and he gives them correct doctrine. What Jesus is doing when he teaches the Old Testament, by the way, is he's not canceling out the Old Testament. He's not saying, here was the Old Testament. That was kind of awful. Here's some new rules instead. He's giving you the correct interpretation of it. You've heard it said this. Let me tell you what that command was always meant to be. You've heard it said this, but let me tell you what God's heart in that command was always meant to be. Jesus has good exegesis. Jesus has good hermeneutics. He interprets the Bible correctly, okay? Uh, He tells people about God's will. He tells people about how they can find eternal life and how there might be forgiveness and how they might interpret the Bible correctly, etc. And he also speaks about what will happen in the future, okay? He also speaks about what will happen in the future. You get this with like the Olivet Discourse, Jerusalem being destroyed, the Son of Man coming back, etc., 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 okay? Let me give you some passages that talk about Jesus revealing God as a prophet. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's Christ. John 6, 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Acts three twenty two. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you, talking about Christ. Hebrews 3, 2 through 3, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Matthew 13, 57, and they took offense at him, but Jesus said to him, a prophet, notice that he's referring to himself as a prophet, is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household, right? So Jeff Ashley, when he preaches at Parkway, it's powerful. People get saved. He goes back and preaches at Baytown, nothing, just falls flat. The prophet has no honor in his hometown, and it's Baytown, Matthew 21, 46. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Luke 4, 18 through 21. This is what Jesus reads about himself. Out of all the things Jesus could read about himself, here's what he decides to read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying, do you remember in Isaiah how there was a spirit-inspired prophet who was going to come and fix what is broken in the world? Notice Jesus' gospel message doesn't just include atonement for sin. It includes things like recovery of sight for the blind and good news for the poor and these kind of things. It's holistic restoration of the cosmos, okay? Next, let's look at Jesus' priest. A few things to know about Jesus and his role as priest. He began his ministry around the age of 30, and I don't know if you know this or not, but priests actually would begin their ministry around the age of 30. So that's significant. Most people don't talk about that. The, the age that Jesus begins his ministry in is really important because that's the age typically that a priest would begin their ministry, okay? 
He identifies with those who He came to save. We talked about these priests. One of the things that's interesting is a priest has to be somebody that knows what it's like to struggle with temptation. That way, when they minister to somebody, they know. They can minister to them. They can say, I know how you feel, okay? Jesus identifies with sinful humanity at His baptism. Jesus doesn't need to be baptized. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices. But He does so why? Quote, to fulfill all righteousness, meaning I don't need this, but sinful humanity needs this, and so I want to identify with sinful humanity. In fact, there's a sense in which Jesus' priestly work is even in His incarnation. If a priest's job is to join God and man, that's exactly what you have in the incarnation. The eternal God and uh, temporal man uh, combined now for all eternity, okay? Next. Uh, he sympathizes with the weak and hurting. Notice that Jesus is basically a homeless guy. He has no place to lay his head. Foxes have holes. Birds of the nest have, uh, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He's always hanging out with the poor. He's always hanging out with the weak. He's always hanging out with the sick. Uh, he's hanging out with women, which in the first century is something that you typically wouldn't do because that was seen as lowly and these kind of things. Uh, but that's who Jesus is uh, hanging out with. He goes to the weak and the hurting. Uh, he cleanses like a priest. If you were a leprous person, you would come to the priest and the priest would declare you to be clean if you were clean. Jesus instead goes to the person with leprosy, touches them, and instead of Jesus becoming unclean, they become clean. The, the cleanness of the temple is going out instead of the uncleanness of our sin to the temple. Okay? <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> like a priest, he is found to be in the temple and he cleanses the temple. Okay? Priests would take blood and they would cleanse different elements of the temple. What Jesus is going to do is He's going to cleanse the temple in a more powerful spiritual sense where He's driving out the money changers and saying, you've missed the point. You've missed the point. Okay? And Jesus is both priest and sacrifice. He's both priest and the lamb that needs to be sacrificed. Okay? So He's not merely one who kills something else. He's one who freely lays down His life uh, for atonement. Okay? He teaches God's law. We talked about that. That's what a priest does. He makes atonement for the people. We talk about that. That's what a priest does. He cleanses those who are unclean. We talked about it. Let me give you a few passages here. Matthew 8, 1 through 3. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Notice that he's making a, an unclean person clean like a priest would do. Only he's doing it uh, in a more powerful way. Mark 5, 25 to 30. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? So here's this woman under the Old Testament who would have been unclean because of this uh, menstrual discharge that uh, she's unable to stop, that's causing her a lot of uh, affliction. And instead, by touching Jesus, instead of him becoming unclean, she becomes clean. Hebrews 2, 17 through 18, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted, okay? God cannot be tempted, okay? The Bible's clear on that. God doesn't tempt nor is he tempted by anything, but mankind can be tempted. So within the incarnation, as Jesus remains God and takes on a second nature as well, he's now able to experience temptation, though he doesn't give in to the temptation. Is Jesus really tempted in the wilderness? Yes. Why? Because he has to relive the roles of Adam and Israel and us, and where we're tempted and fail, Jesus is tempted and he succeeds, which means you have a faithful high priest. 
When you're struggling with sin, Jesus doesn't just say, get over it. He says, I know what that's like. I know that temptation. I've felt that pull of that potential sin. And I want you to know that I love you and I've died for you. You have a sympathetic high priest with Christ. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Okay. Now, just a quick, uh, quick note. I don't have time to get into this a ton. We'll, we'll probably get into this if we get into the book of Hebrews at some time. How can Jesus be a priest if he's not of the tribe of Levi? What tribe is Jesus from? Judah. What, uh, what does Judah do? What's their role? What, what tribe is that? It's a king. It's a kingly kind of tribe. Okay. How can Jesus then be a priest if he's not of the tribe of Levi? What the author of Hebrews is going to say is that there is a sense in which Jesus is a more powerful priest than rabbi, or than rabbi, than uh, Levi, who also were rabbis, but uh, Levi, okay? Here's the idea. In the Old Testament, you had this guy named Melchizedek, and he was seen as kind of this priest, okay? And a tenth of the spoils were given to this guy. Even though he's not of the tribe of Levi, he's seen as this more powerful kind of priest, What this text is saying is that Jesus is a priest like that. He's a priest that precedes Israel, if you want to say it that way. So he's both a king in that he's the tribe of Judah, and he's a priest not like Levi, but like Melchizedek, that he's still able to atone for the people. He's still able to to do that. But we don't have time. That's in Hebrews 7, if you want to read it. Uh, I don't have time to unpack that today, but that's for, uh, for another lesson. Last time I talked about Melchizedek, I actually completely like misquoted it, and Jeff made fun of me. I said something about Melchizedek was in the loins of this person. I just didn't know what I was saying, but Hebrews 7. Jesus is king. Let's talk about his role as king. He rules the world, okay? All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto him. He rules the world. Everything belongs to him, including the obedience from all people. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every single person on earth will give Jesus glory either by repenting and giving Him glory for His grace, or by being condemned and being judged, and therefore He gets glory for His justice. But there is no not giving Christ glory. He will have His glory. It's not dependent on you. He can get it through justice, or He can get it through uh, mercy, but He will get His glory, okay? Obedience from all people. He rules the nations with a rod of iron, as the Bible would say. He will one day judge the world. We talked about kings judging. Jesus will judge the world. He protects the poor and downcast. One of the things the king was supposed to do was to make sure that he was on the side of the poor, okay? Not anybody who was poor, but the righteous poor, people that were not poor due to, due to certain bad decisions and these kind of things. Uh, he studies God's law. Notice that Jesus grows in wisdom. He grows with favor of man. That can't be talking about in his deity. It's talking about in his humanity, though he is God and man. There's only one Jesus. He wars against our enemies. So we talked about kings studying God's law. Jesus does that. We talked about kings judging. Jesus does that. We talked about kings warring, going to a war with the Philistines or Israel's enemies. Jesus does that. Jesus goes to war with the serpent, okay? He comes to crush the serpent's head. He is the offspring of Eve who would crush that serpent's head. He goes to war on our behalf. We're given spiritual armor. In the book of Revelation, he's specifically fighting at war with uh, the dragon, the devil, et cetera, et cetera, Okay? Let me give you some passages. If it sounds like I'm going fast, it's only because I'm running out of time. Luke 1, 32. <clears throat> he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and uh, the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Notice that he is the king that would sit on David's throne. 
Matthew 28, 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me, all authority. Acts 2, 29 through 36, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption." This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified." Now, we could spend a lot of time in that. You have a Trinitarian reference there. You have the idea of death and resurrection of Christ. The main thing I want to point out is that uh, what's being preached here is Jesus is the one that David calls Lord. Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is the one who doesn't see decay because though he does truly die, he's resurrected, whereas David's body would have decayed. Hebrews 1.8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. Notice, by the way, that Jesus there, the Son, is directly called God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Scepter is the, uh, this rod that a king holds that's a symbol of their authority and power. Christ has that. Revelation 11.15, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Okay? Let me give you three points of application as uh, Jeff starts stretching out and uh, warming up to come up here to help answer questions. In his role as prophet, you know who God is, what God wants from you, and the good news of salvation. Okay? What, what, so what? What's the practical application of this? In Jesus' role as prophet, you know who God is, you know what God wants from you, and you know the good news of salvation, which is the main thing that God wants from you. The main thing God wants from you is not for you to do more stuff. He wants you to rest and realize it's finished. He wants you to rest and realize Christ did the stuff for you so you don't have to do the stuff, okay? That's what you're supposed to know. Number two, in his role as priest, you have someone who can sympathize with you when you're hurting and who also has reconciled you to God through his atonement. When you are tempted, Jesus can say, I know how you feel. When you feel betrayed, you've had a spouse cheat, you have had somebody just stab you in the back, Jesus can say, I know how you feel because of Judas. When, you're, you don't have, when you're, you're stressed out, you don't know what's coming, Jesus can say, I know how you feel because the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, when you feel as though people misunderstand you or uh, slander you or say bad things behind your back, Jesus can say, I know how you feel because that's what people did for me. When you run into frustrating religious people who don't care about grace and are just legalists, Jesus can say, I know how you feel. I dealt with that too. Whatever struggle you're going through, Jesus can sympathize with your weaknesses because though he didn't sin, he made perfect atonement on your behalf. He uh, was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And then he also makes atonement for you. We've talked about that a lot, though. Number three, in his role as king, you know who rules over all and is one day going to finally fix what is broken in the world. We as Christians should be tremendously optimistic. Now, that's really ironic because I'm I'm a super pessimist, right? Like, I'm not just like the glass is half empty. I'm like the glass is completely empty, and it's going to fall off the table, and it's going to break, and it's going to cut me. That's me. But Christians should be optimistic. Why? Because the story ends well for us. Worst case scenario is you suffer some in this life and God never leaves you or forsakes you. And then there's eternal joy.
You don't have to worry about what all nations do. You don't have to worry about everything that happens in politics because Christ rules and everything's going to be okay. And one day there'll be no more weeping or crying or pain or death. The enemy will be judged and there's only eternal bliss in fellowship with God for all eternity. That's worst case scenario for you. That's pretty good. If somebody said to you, Zach, let me tell you the worst thing that's going to happen to you. Eternal bliss and no pain. Though, yeah, you'll suffer some now, but even God will get you through that. What's the catch? There's no catch. It's hard for us to believe that grace is that great, that grace is that gracious, but uh, that's who we have in Christ. So, prophet, priest, and king, there you go. Sorry I had to run through and skip over some of that. There's too much info here. Jeffrey, would you come up and uh, be a prophet for us? us? Tell us the word of God as people ask questions.